If you've got a Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 5. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark together over the course of the last several months, and we come to this passage this morning. And what we've been seeing through the Gospel of Mark is this full, robust picture of Jesus, of who He is, that He is indeed our servant King, as Mark presents Him to us. And we come to Mark chapter 5 this morning as we continue to look at this snapshot of Jesus as we move towards Easter and remembering His, his death and His burial and His resurrection, getting a clearer and clearer vision of who He is and what He's aiming to accomplish in our lives. So Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 20 together. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have it in front of you as we read. Beginning in verse 1 of Mark 5, Mark writes, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly to send them out of the country. Or not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And he begged him saying, send us to the, to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described for them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Growing up in South Louisiana, in Lake Charles, Louisiana to be specific, about two hours east of Houston, Texas, I grew up as a Houston Astros fan. And before you pick out your tomatoes and start throwing them, okay? um, I I grew up as an Astros fan, watched the Astros play ball in the old Astrodome before they had the new Minute Maid Field. Uh, But it was a diehard Houston Astros fan. And in 2017, they went on a historic run to capture the first World Series title. And listen, when that last out of the World Series was recorded, I'm like, you know, like celebrating in my living room, jumping up and down, screaming at the top of my lungs, you know, like ripping my shirt, like all that kind of stuff's going on whenever they capture their first World Series title. But it's a sad day now for Houston Astro fans. 
Because unbeknownst to us at the time, uh, they had devised a scheme, a deceitful scheme to cheat other teams out of potential wins whenever they came into their home park and even sometimes when they, they traveled on the road. And the way that they did this was by installing video surveillance in the center field and directing the cameras toward the opposing catcher's signs as he was giving them to the pitchers. And so they would steal the signs and they would bang on a trash can, one bang for one pitch, two bangs for another pitch, or they would whistle from the dugout a certain tone or types of whistles for certain pitches. So the batters were tipped off to the pitches before they were ever leaving the pitcher's hand. Distinct advantage, right? And so Major League Baseball did an investigation and found that throughout the 2017 season and a majority of the 2018 season, they employed this scheme. As a result, Major League Baseball hit them with suspensions of their general manager, of their field manager, who subsequently were fired by the ownership of the Astros. Uh, the team had to pay a fine. They lost their first and second round draft picks in this year's draft and in next year's draft. So there was penalties levied by Major League Baseball. But for many fans, they didn't believe that that was enough. They thought the league should have gone farther. And because they thought the league should have gone farther and because they had so much kind of vitriol pent up in them, uh, they began to lash out in ways that and cross lines that no one should have ever crossed. And words were said that no one should ever say. In fact, on social media, uh, one of the Houston Astros players, the shortstop Carlos Correa, said he received messages on social media threatening to rape and kill his family. One of the Houston Astros outfielders, Josh Reddick, said at one point he had posted uh, this video of his young child, a uh, young boy, his son, rolling over for the first time. I remember the joy of that as a parent and seeing your kid roll over for the first time. You're like, oh man, life's never going to be the same again. Okay? So they roll over and they go from their front to the back or the back to the front. Right? And everybody in the comment section that knew him and loved Josh, they were all, you know, had all these cute comments posting about everything. Uh, you know, how cute the little dimples were and how cute, you know, the, the, the chubby fat cheeks were. But this one commenter, this one commenter crossed the line when he said, I hope your son gets cancer. In response to the Astros scheme and cheating. So there, no, matter, no matter what took place on the field, there's some lines you just never cross. And you might ask yourself the question, like how could someone wish that and then write that in the comment section of a social media feed? And you may be, be, be may, your initial thought may be, well, listen, the anonymity of social media, people can get away with saying whatever they would like to say. And while on one level that is true, I want you to know something this morning, church. That those kinds of comments, that kind of, listen, there's a reason the Bible says do not repay evil for evil, because that is our natural tendency. That is our fall and bent, is to repay evil for evil. Someone does something to me, I'm going to do something back to them. Someone robs me of something I think I was due, I'm going to rob them of something that they believe that they are due of. It's our natural bent to repay evil for evil. But these wishes and these words, I want you to know they come from the same place, the same place as the Holocaust. They come from the same place as the Rwandan genocide. And I want you to know that while the scope of those events was much broader and larger and more weighty and impactful on the numbers of people, listen, while the scope of that was broader, the source of it is the same. The source of it is, is the same, church. Listen, over and over again, the Bible 
affirms the reality of personal evil forces in our world that are at work. Listen, in the New Testament, 32 times the word devil is mentioned as a personal evil force. And we would do well to remember, right, that during our Christian pilgrimage here on this planet, that our wrestling, as where Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we're fighting against. That's what we're wrestling with. And while the scheme that that team concocted in order to cheat their way to a World Series title was evil, what it elicited was a, was a, was a wellspring of evil and flood of evil that rose from people's hearts that if it was acted upon would result in the same kinds of reactions as the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide of more recent days. Now listen, when it comes to the presence of personal evil forces in our world, there's two traps that we could fall into as Christians. There's two traps, and C.S. Lewis paints this picture brilliantly in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Listen to what he says. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail or praise a materialist who think they don't exist and a magician with the same delight. They're equally as delighted by the materialist and the magician, one who believes they don't exist and one who is fascinated and captivated by them, infatuated with them. And listen, in our text this morning, we read about the presence of personal evil forces in the world. On the heels of the text that we looked at last week, what we saw last week is that Jesus is the power, exercises authority and power over all of nature. As he commands the storm and the winds die down and the waves become calm. This week, we see not Jesus exercising power and authority over natural forces, but over spiritual ones. And I think Mark takes those two stories and he brings them together in this way for a reason. Listen, in both stories, both stories end in fear. See, when they cross the lake and they make it to the other side, the disciples are more terrified at Jesus' power than they were at the storm itself. And here in this text, the people of the, the, the region are more frightened by Jesus' power to expel the demons than they were by the demoniac himself. Right? They both end in fear. Both In both stories, the disciples and the townspeople witness a massive miracle, but it does not lead to faith, at least not yet in their lives. And in both of these stories, there's a clear connection in the outcomes of the stories. When Jesus stills the storm, there's a great glass-like calm over the waters. And when Jesus casts out the demons, the people come and they find him. And he's clothed and in his right mind. Right, So the waves that were tossing inside of him have been stilled. 
while the waves that were tossing around them had been still. There's, a, there's, there's these parallels over and over again in these stories. The first to show us that Jesus can exercise power over natural forces, and the second to show us that he exercises power over spiritual forces. Because those personal spiritual forces are real. They are not imaginary. Listen, and I, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be a psychiatrist, or a psychologist. There are such things as mental illnesses. There are such things as, as, as physiological issues with our brains. But listen, we are fooling ourselves if in a day of modern medicine we discount the presence of personal, real, spiritual forces of evil in the world and in our lives. We're fooling ourselves. And so from this text, what I want us to see this morning is the nature and shape of evil and how it's defeated. Okay, so the nature of evil, the shape of evil, and then how it's defeated. First of all, let's take a look at the nature of evil. See, evil is presented throughout the Bible. We're going to blow it up a little bit. We can't say everything the Bible says about evil in one sermon. We, well, we could, but we'd be here quite some time. Uh, but, but, but the nature of evil throughout the Bible is presented as something that's very complex and progressive. It's complex and progressive. So evil, listen, it's not as simple as the old adage, right? The devil made me what? Do it. It's not as simple as that. You can't just re re resign all responsibility and accountability and say the devil made me do it. I couldn't help myself. But nor is it as simple as saying my desires made me do it. It's not as simple as that either. Because listen, for those who are caught in the grips of evil... Listen, you have to see that what the devil does is he hijacks our desires. The demons hijack our desires, our fallen desires. Because listen, I want you to know something. The devil is not God. Only God is able to create something out of nothing. But you know what? The devil needs raw material to work with. He's got to have something to work with. Okay? He cannot create ex nihilo. He cannot speak things into existence. Only God is able to do that. But Satan, the devil demons, they need raw materials in their hands with which to work. They have to have that. And so throughout the Bible, what you see is that there's this complex relationship between our sinful, distorted desires and the influence of demonic forces. Let me give you a few examples. In 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the qualifications for elders. Paul writes to Timothy and he says this about an elder. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. In a, into a snare of the devil. Right? So there's a sense in which pride being conceited, puffed up in your own mind is attached to the influence of the devil. Okay, so pride, what, what Satan will do is he will hijack our pride and he'll begin to create a stronghold in our life where he begins to lock down our life in, in conceit and arrogance and prideful blown-uppedness, okay? Puff-uppedness. That's what he does. So he doesn't create something out of nothing, but he takes something that's there, he takes your pride, and then he begins to leverage that. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Or bitterness. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to who? The devil. In other words, don't go on with festering, unresolved, relational strife. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't let there be bitterness that contaminates your relationships. Because if you do, he says, you're opening a door for the influence of the devil. An opportunity for him to come and begin to lock down areas of your life. And create strongholds or lust. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And then he says in verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul's painting a contrast between the Lord's servant, speaking to Timothy, and his opponents who stand in, in, in opposition to him. And he says, Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting with gentleness. God might bring them to repentance and to a knowledge of the truth, so that you, they, your opponents, might be released from the snare of the devil. But he says, they... His, his opponents essentially are those who had given themselves over to these foolish and ignorant controversies. His opponents are those who had given themselves over to youthful passions that began to flare up in their life. They yielded to their youthful passions, to their youthful lust, to their greed, their desire, their quest for power or for pleasure. And what Satan had done is he entrapped them in that. Listen, he doesn't create something out of nothing, but he takes what is there and he begins to lock down areas of our life. See, evil in the Bible is complex. Not as simple as the devil made me do it or my desires made me do it. It's that Satan oftentimes hijacks our desires and brings us to a place that we never thought that we would go. So evil is complex, but listen, it's also progressive. And you see that in this particular text. Listen, in this particular text, you read about the, about the progressiveness of evil. You see that whenever Jesus shows up there on the shore and he's met by the man there coming out of the tombs, we're told that he had chains and shackles with which they used to bind him, but he could not be bound, what? Any longer or any more. In other words, there was a time in his life in which he could be bound, in which he could be restrained, in which the chains were enough, in which the shackles were strong enough, but now it's reached a point in his life where he can no longer be bound. He's unrestrained because evil is progressive in our lives. In other words, Right? It progresses, it develops, it never starts full-blown, but it develops and strengthens its, its grip over the course of time. So listen, let me see if I can break it down for you this way. Listen, despite what Charlie Daniel said, and the devil came down to Georgia, okay? I know I'm speaking to my audience this morning, a bunch of you country folk in here, okay? Listen, despite what he said, the devil doesn't just show up on a stump, 
a hickory stump out in the backyard and strike a deal with us. Okay, that's not how it usually goes down, right? But the way that it happens in our lives, right? Because Satan never comes to us and says, listen, if you yield to me, you can escape your pain and your problems. That's what he promises, right? You can escape, but he never says, but you will end up strung out on meth and living in a cardboard box under a bridge. Why? Because evil is progressive. It starts with the escape from the pain and the problems, but then it ends up strung out on drugs and homeless. He never comes to us and says, if you yield to me, you can experience an exciting, pulse-pounding sensation with images on a computer screen or with live flesh outside of your marriage. But he never goes on to say, but you will blow up your family and your children will never speak to you again. Because it's progressive, church. He never comes to us and says, listen, if you yield to me, you'll, become, you'll, you'll rise in power, you'll rise in authority, you'll climb the corporate ladder, you'll be successful, and you'll be affluent. But he stops short of saying you'll become a workaholic who is devoted to their job, so much so that they'll cut moral and ethical corners that will grind the poor into the dust of the earth. See, no one ever says, sign me up for that. Right? But, but it's progressive. It's like a seed that gets planted in a life or in a heart that once it gives, once, it, once it's fully, fully grown, it bears a rotten, despicable kind of fruit that is destructive. See, evil, evil is complex and it is progressive. That's the nature of it, church. Satan doesn't create something out of nothing. He takes what is there and he amplifies it and locks down areas of our lives that slowly get more and more given over to his influence. That's the nature of it. Second of all, the shape of it. It's the shape of evil. Listen, some of us look at this man and they say, well, this guy was like possessed. Like for real, for real, right? Possessed. I've never seen anybody quite like that, okay? And I've never been quite there before. And listen, let me just say, I, I don't think, just based on my understanding of the Scriptures, I don't think a Christian who is inhabited and indwelt by the Holy Spirit can be indwelt or inhabited by a demonic force. But you certainly can be influenced by them. Certainly can be influenced by them. And the shape evil takes in your life, listen, it is vicious, enslaving, and isolating. It is vicious, enslaving, and isolating. Listen, notice that the man, was, when he was among the tombs, what was he doing? He was crying out day and night in agony and pain as he was cutting himself. With stones, we're told. This is, a, this is a vicious description. In fact, the word that, that, that uh, Mark uses in verse 4 to say that no one was able to subdue him is used again in James chapter 3, verse 7 to describe the sub, sub, subduing of a wild beast or of a wild animal. This vicious, ferocious cycle. And listen, this is the shape that evil takes in our lives. Personal evil takes this in our lives. Demons and the devil, they take this shape in our lives. It is vicious and destructive. Let me show you how. Whenever, whenever demonic forces hijack our pride, whenever they hijack our pride, it becomes a vicious and destructive 
overinflation and underinflation cycle in our lives. Right? Maybe you've experienced this. I know I have. Listen, but whenever pride, your pride begins to swell up, whenever you begin to become conceited, right? What happens to your head? It gets really big. It becomes overinflated, doesn't it? Right? Because you did something really, really well. And so you take pride in what you've accomplished and what you've achieved. And, the, and, and Satan and his demons, they, they, they leverage that pride. Not a healthy sense of accomplishment, but a pride that sets you above and apart from everyone else. You become overinflated so much so that you talk about yourself all the time. You boast about yourself all the time. You brag about yourself all of the time of what you've done, of where you've been, of what you've accomplished. Again, not a healthy sense of accomplishment, but an unhealthy, demonic presence of pride that's been amplified and turned up in a life. And what happens is it overinflates you. But then whenever you fail, whenever you don't succeed, what happens? It's like a needle gets put to that big head and it just, like a, like a balloon does, right? It just gets withers. And you look in the mirror and you say, you're not even worth the breath that you're breathing. Where does that come from? Where, that's the amplification this vicious, destructive cycle of the presence of personal evil amplifying your pride in your life. So you become overinflated or you become underinflated because it is vicious. Second of all, it's not only vicious, but listen, it is enslaving. Notice the chains and the shackles in the text. And although they can no longer hold him or restrain him, there's still a picture here of being bound and enslaved. Okay? Bound and enslaved. Now listen. Listen. When demons hijack our youthful passions, our lusts, our greed, what perhaps started out as an innocent exploration or not so innocent exploration as hormones begin to make their way into the picture in the preteen and teen years, and now with one of these devices at our fingertips, you can find anything at any time, anywhere. Things that are grotesque distortions of human sexuality called pornography. And listen, whenever those Youthful passions or lust get amplified by demonic forces as we open doors to them. What happens is that occasion turns into an addiction that becomes to, begins to enslave you. And listen, I've talked to many men and actually young women as well who have been enslaved by the trap of pornography. Because, and listen, the devil didn't make them do it. And nor was it just their desires, but it was both working in concert together. So I've walked that road personally. I know how destructive it can be, how enslaving it can be. 
just as much, if not more so. In fact, studies and research has been done to show that the centers of the brain that are activated through those illicit images are similar to the centers of the brain that are activated through cocaine. That's how addictive it is. And what started as a one-off now becomes an everyday occasion. Because it is enslaving and controlling so much so that you feel like you have to have it. Listen, that's where it's moved from sin, from our desires to the amplification of those by demonic forces. So it's vicious, it is enslaving, and it is also isolating. It's isolating. Listen, look at where the man's living. Where's he at? He's not in town. He is out among the tombs. He's out among the tombs. And listen, in a, in a, this was in a Gentile region, but this is being written to, the book of Mark's being written to a predominantly Gentile audience. However, Jesus is a Jewish man. As he crosses over into this region of the Gentiles, he's going into an unclean region filled with unclean people at an unclean place with an unclean spirit. All kinds of uncleanness going on here. Which from a Jewish mind would have isolated and separated those individuals from the population. In fact, coming into contact with a tomb meant that you were unclean for at least seven days because you were in contact with the dead. So there's all kinds of uncleanness and isolation that results from it. And listen, the more firm a grip evil forces get on your life, the more they isolate you from others. Listen, some of you know that truth all too well. See, the deeper of an influence evil has over your life, personal forces of evil have over your life, the more you're isolated from those around you. When demons hijack your anger and bitterness, listen, it takes on a life of its own. That drives you away from everyone around you. Some of us have found that to be true in our lives. When there are things that we just allow to fester, right? That unlike Ephesians 4, we don't we let the sun go down on our anger. We let the bitterness and resentment boil in our life. And then we turn the temperature down and just let it simmer for a long time. And when we do that, listen. We open the door for the amplification of all of that anger, all of that resentment, and all of that bitterness to cause us to withdraw from even the healthy relationships in our life because we no longer trust them because they're going to hurt us just like they did. And listen, it has lasting impacts. You begin to withdraw from people and isolate. The more you're enslaved and the more alone you feel, the more vicious is the cycle and destructive it becomes in your life. That is the shape of evil in your life and in mine. It is vicious, enslaving, and isolating. And notice the end result of this. It just completely fractures the human personality. Your soul. Look in the text, we're told when Jesus says, what is your name? They say, we are legion. I'm legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion of troops in the ancient world would have been upwards of 5,000 troops. Okay, so listen, however many demons were in this guy, 
There was a lot. More than a lot. There was a legion. And so he ends up not with what we might call split personality, but a completely shattered personality. He doesn't know who he is. And listen, this is the end result in a life that has been infected and influenced by personal forces of evil. And that vicious, destructive cycle of enslavement and isolation to where the human personality is shattered into pieces. That's what's on the other end of you'll be affluent and successful and well-respected in the community. That's what's on the other end of you'll have this pulse pounding sensation and pleasure. That's what's on the other end of escaping from your pain and problems is a shattered personality. Because that's the shape evil always takes in a person's life. So how is it defeated? How is it defeated? Listen, there's no mistake. There's no mistake here that Jesus is the hero. Right? It's no mistake. Because the way evil is defeated here in Mark's gospel, in this particular text, and then the rest of Mark's gospel, is by the word and the work of Jesus. By the word and the work of Jesus. Look at how Jesus delivers this man, church. Listen, he, he just says, come out. Right? That's what he says. Come out. Right? Whenever you, archaeologists have dug up literature of, from other ancient cultures that have examples of exorcisms that are much more involved than this. In fact, they found Egyptian papyri, okay, buried in the desert that are filled with these long convoluted formulas and spells and conjurations and catchwords that ancient exorcists used to try to use to leverage and get advantage over these demons they were trying to drive out. But listen, Jesus, as we said last week, just like with the storm, he doesn't stand up and roll up his sleeves, he doesn't break a sweat, right? He's not invoking some other higher power. He's not saying in the name of somebody, I say, come out. What does he say? Come out. I am the higher power. I am power himself in your presence. We said that last week about the storm. Again, this week, Mark shows us the same thing. He's not casting or conjuring anything, right? And listen, to remove all doubt about this, listen, listen to how Mark highlights the divinity of Jesus for us. That he himself is God who has authority over all including the forces of darkness. Listen, in verse 19, in verse 19 it says, And he did not permit him but to follow him, to come with him, but said to him, rather, Go home and tell your friends and your, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much, who? Not the Lord, Jesus had done for him. See what Mark does there? Very sly, right? He draws an equal sign between the Lord and Jesus. Go tell him how much the Lord has done for you. And then Mark says he went and told him everything that Jesus had done for him. You know what he's saying? They are one and the same, church. They are one and the same. So he has the power to say, come out. Come out. 
But, in, but no, also, I want you to notice the value placed by Jesus on this man that he delivers. Listen, he's in a region full of Gentiles who are herding pigs. Okay, and this is not a livestock show and rodeo. Okay, this is, this is straight up pig herders. Okay, raising these things for food in the Gentile regions. For Jews, those were unclean, so they never knew the joy of bacon. Okay, but the Gentiles, they knew how good bacon was. All right. So they're raising pigs. There's about 2,000 pigs in this herd that we're told. And Jesus drives the demons out of the, out of the man and into this herd of pigs. And then the pigs do what? They plunge themselves off of the cliff into the sea and they drowned. They drowned. Now listen, then the people show up and they say, Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. Why in the world... Why in the world, whenever Jesus does this massive miracle, delivers this man from personal and powerful forces of evil in his life, casts them out into a herd of pigs, the pigs die, people show up and say, be gone. Because listen, these pigs, these 2,000 pigs, represented a massive amount of wealth for those pig herders. Massive amount of wealth. Listen, there's all kind of conjecture. Commentators are all over the place on this. Like, why the pigs? I think what Jesus, what Mark is trying to get us to see and what Jesus wants to demonstrate is this. Listen, as sensitive as we are as animal rights activists, like PETA, in our day and age, what Jesus is saying is there is nothing more valuable than the deliverance and rescue of a human soul. No matter how much wealth is lost, what matters most is this man right here before me, not those pigs over there. They were not created in the image of God, yet he was. Look at the value that Jesus places upon him. It's it's beautiful to see that. And then finally, look look at how Jesus defeats evil fully, finally, once for all. Because if you fast forward in Mark's gospel, you get to the end of the book of Mark, and I want you to see something with me. That Jesus and this man, they switch places. They switch places. Okay, the end of the book of Mark, here in this story, you find this man is naked and beaten and bloodied out among the tombs. At the end of Mark's gospel, you find that Jesus is stripped naked and he is beaten and bloodied. In this story, you find the man is crying out. He's abandoned and isolated. At the end of Mark's gospel, you find Jesus crying out on the cross. He's abandoned by those who are closest to him and feels an overwhelming, universal, infinite sense of isolation as the Father has turned his back upon the one who would bear the sins of the world. So when you get to the end of the Mark's gospel, Jesus and this man have switched places. Because, and through all of this, you know what Jesus was doing? He was defeating evil fully and finally and for all. Disarming, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, And you who were, verse 13, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. At the cross, Jesus put a beat down on every principality and every power and every ruler and every authority of the, of, of the, of the spiritual realm and dark, of darkness. He put a beat down. 
You know how he did it? By switching places with this man. And switching places with me. And with you. Because see, he did this so he could wipe out evil forever without wiping me out. Because if he had wiped out evil forever in any way apart from the cross, I would have been wiped out. You would have been wiped out because of our sin. But you know what? Because of the cross, Jesus was destroying evil at the cross forever. Forever without destroying us. And that's the good news of the gospel, church. Is that what Jesus has done in the living in our place and dying in our place is He's destroyed evil without destroying me. Destroyed evil without destroying you. Destroyed evil without destroying us. So we could know Him. We could worship Him. We could walk with Him. We could love Him. Be reconciled to Him. So what do we do with all this? We give you two things and then we're, we're done. First of all, listen, if you find yourself in the grips of the forces, influence, demonic oppression as some theologians would label it. You find that vicious, destructive, enslaving, and isolating cycle at work in your life progressing from bad to worse. Listen, I want to tell you the only place that you can find deliverance is in Jesus. It is not in the exercise of your willpower. So trust in His power to save you and trust in His power to deliver you. Not your power. Your power will always fall short. It will always be insufficient. It will never be enough. It will never be enough for you to look at this phone and say, I'm not going to visit that site again. It will never be enough. You need to trust in His power to save you, to deliver you, to set you free. So that whenever you come to be tempted to look at that screen again, as you're trying to break free from that cycle of influence and that amplification in your life of your youthful lust or your greed for pleasure, that you remind yourself of what He did to disarm those powers at the cross. You don't just say, I'm going to get better and put it down. You say, no. No, He has given me victory over this. So I don't have to go here anymore. I don't have to be defined by this any longer. But I can be free because He's disarmed their power. He's disarmed their authority. They don't have control over me any longer. Praise God. Trust in His power to deliver you, church. And second of all, I'm sorry, I got a little excited there. Second of all, listen, stop stacking wood. Okay? Stop stacking. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Listen, in, in anybody who's ever owned a home, right, and had a fireplace, right, they get, the, you know, they, they go out and they search high and low for firewood every fall so they can, What? have a fire in that thing, crackle, roast some marshmallows, right? Just sit by that warm fire and play board games, right? And speaking King James English to their children, right? This very nostalgic scene, okay? It's a very nostalgic scene there around the fireplace every evening. 
But listen, in order to have that fireplace roaring on those cold nights, you have to have firewood in order to fuel it. It's got to have some fuel, doesn't it? And so what we do is we stack wood out somewhere out in our backyard. But listen, if you stack wood too close to the house or too close to your fence, and that wood gets invaded by moisture, and it gets invaded by little buggies called termites, what happens? It can transfer from there into the other places, and it can begin to cause rot and damage on your fence or on the framing of your home. It can do massive amounts of destruction under the surface that you never see, all because you stack the wood. Listen, Satan, again, cannot create something out of nothing. He takes the wood that we've been stacking by our pride, the wood that we've been stacking by our bitterness, the wood that we've been stacking by our anger, the wood that we've been stacking with our lust and our greed, and he amplifies it. He invades it, and he begins to cause it to rot from the inside out, and it begins to have collapsing effects in your life. And so stop stacking the wood. What do you do? You repent of your pride, church. Today, you repent of your self-righteous anger. Today, you repent of your bitterness and greed. Today, you repent of your lust. Today, you turn from those things. That's what repentance is. It's turning in the opposite direction. And you, you impale your pride with the nails of the cross you impale your greed with the, with the nails of the cross. You nail it there, right? The debt that you owed, Paul says, he has nailed it to the cross, canceling it for us. And so what we have the joy of doing is setting those things aside now, repenting from them and turning from them. Stop stacking the wood. And if you'll stop stacking the wood, here's, here's the reality. There's no fuel for the fire. There's no fuel for the fire. So what is, it, what, is it there, what is there in your life today that needs to be repented from? As you, tr- as you trust in Jesus' power, not your willpower, but His power to deliver you. And pray for us as we close. Father, this morning, as we've come to celebrate the goodness of Your Son, all by the power of Your Spirit, Father, I pray for myself, God, that I may not be deceived, which is one of Satan's primary tactics in our lives. Father, I pray that I may not yield to a heart that would be filled with resentment, bitterness, lust, and pride, and greed. And I pray the same for my brothers and sisters. Father, wherever there are stacks of wood in our lives, that are fueling the fire. Maybe we repent. If that means being reconciled to a brother or sister this morning, that we have harbored resentment towards, may that be done today, insofar as it depends on us. Father, there are prideful, prideful amplifications of our accomplishments and our achievements. Father, may we be stripped bare of those today. Father, if there are lustful desires in our hearts that have enslaved us and isolated us from Christian community, 
Father, may we turn from that today as we trust in the power of Jesus to deliver us. As we preach the good news to ourselves, remind ourselves that we have victory in Him over all of them. And that we might be a free people, not just a forgiven one. We pray it in Jesus' name.